hope you have a copy of the scriptures with you, and I invite you to take your Bible and to turn to James chapter 4. If you are uh, new with us today, we, uh, as is our custom, have been doing a study through the book of James. We take the book of the Bible and we walk through it verse by verse, uh, section by section, and we seek to see what the author is telling the folks that he's writing to. And, of course, the ultimate author is the Lord himself through the Holy Spirit. And uh, then apply it to our own lives. Now, last week we were in the same couple of verses that we are in today. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And let me just go back and give you an overview. Ask a question. We're going to read uh, this, uh, these two verses again looking for something in particular. I'm going to ask you a question. Now, you know, just looking at these two verses and from last week's message, that this is a command from James to all of us, not only to his hearers, but to all of us, to guard our mouths against speaking against or judging a brother or a sister in Christ. Here's the question that I want to ask you today. What will motivate you to obey that simple command to guard your mouth? To not speak against or judge a brother or a sister in Christ. After the message this last week, I had a, a couple of very good questions, some good comments Obviously, this is not talking about the fact that you and I cannot lovingly but firmly call out a brother or sister who is in sin or who is in error. We are talking about the sins of the mouth where we run down others. So the question is, what will motivate us? And in doing the study a couple of weeks ago, I was struck by some words. And I'm going to emphasize those words, and then we're going to do the study from this particular passage of Scripture. So I'd like you to stand with me, if you would, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not... The force of that verb, if you remember, stop it. It indicates that this was going on in the church. James wanted it to stop. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, I want you to listen to the motivation that James gives in this next verse for why it is so important for us to obey not only this command, but all of the commands of Scripture. Here's the reason that he gives. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But 
Who are you to judge your neighbor? Almighty God, our, our Father, I, I tremble, at least inwardly, if not in a way outwardly, as I deal with this passage of Scripture. Indeed, I tremble each Sunday when I get up here to open your word and, and then to tell your people what this book means to all of us. So, Father, I do not ever want to take it lightly. We all want to hear what you have to say to us today. So we ask that, that there be clarity in the words that are spoken, clarity to pull out the meaning that James has from these scriptures and the application for us. But we also ask for that which we cannot do. We can prepare and we can teach and we can try to be as clear as we can, and certainly I will do that. But Father, unless you open the hearts and, and the ears and give understanding and wisdom to these, your people, that includes me, we will not go away from this place with what we need from this passage. And so we ask in the name of Jesus, that powerful, that strong name of Jesus, that you would do that today. God, we also want to lift up those who are in need around us. We remember today, as we have been doing in this time of prayer, the, the different ministries of our church. And Lord, today we want to lift up the Hope Pregnancy Center to you. What an incredible work this group of people does. And some of our folks are involved in that. The, the helping of, of young women and even men who are involved in the lives of these young women to choose life rather than death. And so, Lord, I pray for their ministry and pray for everything uh, that they need, that you would provide it, again, in the strong name of Jesus. So, Father, now we give ourselves to you, and we ask you to guide us as we study our way through this passage of Scripture. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The big idea of the book of James is faith works. Genuine faith will always grow to one degree or another. And, and we all know that our growth has been like that throughout our lives. But it will grow and it will increasingly reveal itself in practical, God-honoring, gospel-centered living. But today what we're focusing on is almost the same thing. Again, faith works. If you're a follower of Christ, if you have genuine faith, then it will grow and reveal itself in practical God-honoring, gospel-centered living because it will be properly motivated by what James is alluding to here, the fear of God. At Heritage Baptist Church, we have a vision statement. How many of you know the vision statement of our church? As a, as a church, we exist to do several things. We exist to, and you can help me out if you know it, and the rest of you kind of mumble your way through it, okay? 
because we need to know this. If somebody says, what are you all about as a church? This is what we're about. We exist to develop people who delight in God and who declare his glory from our neighborhoods to the nations. And if we are going to develop people who delight in God and declare his glory, there is a component of that growing to maturity in Christ that as I prepared this message, I realized that I don't talk about that much and I don't hear it spoken about that much. Let me give you a couple of verses. By the way, we are going, I'm going to give you a ton of scripture today. And uh, so you just write as fast and furious as you can and uh, then you can email me and I'll send you the, the outline, I'll send you the... Uh, the notes even, and the PowerPoint. But let me give you a couple of scriptures that reveal what we're talking about. Listen to this. Since we have these promises, all of the promises of the word of God, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing, here is the developing of delighting in God, declaring his glory, bringing holiness to completion. And then I've underlined this, highlighted it, in the fear of of God. Most of you know Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, not work for, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I, I think sometimes we miss certain things in the scripture. Our, our tendency is to read the Bible through our cultural lens. And I'm not talking about this church. I, I'm talking about our culture in general. I, I get the impression that most people see God as an old, passive, tolerant, grandfatherly man who gives us some suggestions for how to live life, but who really doesn't get too upset if we don't do what he suggests and we choose to live life our own way. And that is not the God who is revealed in the Bible. I've got some excellent quotes on that sidebar. I want to start with Al Martin's quote. Look at it. The essential elements of the fear of God are, and, and, and we got, we've got to focus on this, the correct concepts of his character. And that, that's what I'm sharing with you today, that I believe with all of my heart that this is missing. And I'm starting with me. In a lot of the lives of a lot of professing believers, we do not have the correct concept of the character of God, nor do we have a pervasive sense of his presence. He lives inside of us. He is present with us and a constant awareness of our responsibility to him. And looking at that verse, verse 12, 
out of the book of James. I believe that James used these particular words, four particular words that would have communicated. See, again, we see it through a particular lens. We have a hard time grasping how the largely Jewish audience, Jewish believers, that was his audience, would have heard these words. And that's what we want to start with, trying to put ourselves into the seats of those people in that, probably that house church. Born-again Jewish believers who were hearing this letter of James read to them. And he used the word lawgiver and judge. Save and destroy. And folks, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that that would have brought up incredibly vivid images in the minds of the hearers of God's character, as Al Martin says, of his presence and of our responsibility to him. I want to get you to turn to at least a couple of places in the scriptures as well as having the scriptures on the overhead, but I'd like you to turn to a couple of those uh, just to to keep you in the flow of things, all right? And, And if you don't want to, that's fine. You can just listen to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 12, a little lengthier passage to to put up on the board behind us. Now now listen to this. Now these things took place as examples. What what Paul is doing is going back. This is an audience of mixed Jews and Gentiles, but this is an example of what he's trying to do. These things, what things? The things that happened back in the Old Testament. The things that told them about the character of God took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now let me just stop here and and, and ask you a question. Are you familiar with all of those stories that Paul references here? That's why it's important that we read through the lens of Scripture and not just our own cultural lens. Let me go on. And then listen to what he says. He began by saying these took place as examples. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We're not through with the Old Testament. We're living out of the New Test or the Old Testament. And so when those words, I, I just and all week I've been struggling. I know that I am not going to be able to communicate the depth of, of what you need to feel, and this needs to be visceral. This, this, I, I believe that this is what the hearers would have felt. 
James used as a motivation to guard your mouth the fact that our God is the lawgiver and judge. Their minds would have immediately gone back to that time early in the wilderness wandering when God said, I I want you to get ready, Moses, and I want you to get the people ready, and I want you to come to Mount Sinai. I want you to come close, but I want you to get ready. And you tell the people to do this. You tell them to consecrate themselves. Go to the heart, consecrate themselves, and then let's work outwardly from that. You tell them to wash their clothes. That's symbolic, but that's important. And then you tell them to abstain from that which is legitimate. Abstain from sexual relations. Get ready because they are coming to meet me. Now, here's what I want you to tell the people to do. When they come to the mountain, they are to get close, but they are not to touch the mountain. By the way, if they've got their dog or their cat, I don't know if they had dogs or cats, if they had any animals with them, don't let the animals touch the mountain because if they do, they will perish. They will be destroyed. Three days they were to do that, and when they, when they drew near to the mountain, there was already, there, there, was, there were clouds around it. There was lightning. There was thunder. I have the sneaking suspicion that these folks, even though they were told to draw near and not touch, I, I don't think they wanted to draw near. They were trembling too. And then when they came near, the Lord spoke and he came down. And there was fire and there was smoke. That I told you I couldn't, in words, describe. Imagine being there that day for the lawgiver to come down and meet with his people and give them his law. I think that's what James' hearers would have automatically gone back to. The reason you ought to watch your mouth, the reason that you ought to obey all of my commands, is because there is one lawgiver. and He is an awesome lawgiver, and he's also a judge. He has the ability, he has the power, he has the authority to judge. But hold on, because James reminds them of another reality, two other words. He is the Savior, and he is the destroyer. I don't know how many things they might have gone back to in their mind's eye. But I could guess that they would go back to Egypt. Was God delivering, was he saving his people out of Egypt? Was he? Yes, with a strong arm. But at the same time, he was also judging and destroying the Egyptians with plagues, with the death of every firstborn, not only human but animal with the destruction of Pharaoh's army? Was God saving his remnant in the wilderness with manna and with water and and with clothing that didn't wear out and with his protection? Yes, 
but was he also judging and destroying those in the nation of Israel who were not a part of the remnant who began to grumble about their situation in the wilderness. And it says that they grumbled against God and they grumbled against his servant Moses. Rebelling against God, rebelling against his constituted leaders. I'm not so sure that James' audience would have done a little bit of shuddering as they considered they knew the story of Korah and his rebellion and the earth opening up. Have you, have you ever read that story? I, I just, I can't even imagine being there. And God even warns them, look, if you're with me, you, you get, get away. Get back. And the earth opens up and swallows them. Closes back together. And then fire comes down and consumes the others who were in rebellion. Lest we read this through the lens of the audience to whom James spoke and what they probably heard as a motivation, we really will not, we'll gloss, we'll gloss over it. We really will not get it. Let, let me ask you to turn to another passage of Scripture. And uh, I'm going to take you to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And then we'll flip over to. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 10, and uh, let's just read verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful. Now, what I did when I reread this, I realized... I marked my Bible, but I did not have the word fearful marked. I marked it. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I'm going to come back to this, but what specific commandment do you think that he might be referring to right there? I don't know, but I, I will give you what I think. I think he's talking about setting aside the third commandment. You know what the third commandment says? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And folks, for years, our, our kids have grown up thinking that that's talking about cussing. And that's all. And you shouldn't cuss, okay? You really, really shouldn't cuss. But it's talking about much more than that. That command is a command against taking God lightly. That's what vain means. Emptiness. Don't take God for granted. Don't take God lightly. How much worse punishment, verse 25, do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him of whom was said, 
vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Then jump over to chapter 12 and verse 29. Why it is, a, is it a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. I just don't think there can be absolutely any doubt as to James' intent for his hearers. That's us. If you and I are going to have a biblically healthy, listen to me, a biblically healthy love for and reverence for and an adoration for God that leads to obedience, then we must have an element of knowledge that God can be frightening. Now, please stick with me and follow me. I, I, would, I would guess that there are probably a few of you in the audience right about now that are saying, okay, pastor, uh, let's go to the butt. You know, it, it, are you going to let up a little bit on this thing about God being frightening and Although, not yet. No, no, I'm not going to let up on it at all. But we will balance it with what I believe that the scriptures tell us. Um, Matthew 10, 28 is an incredible verse. Matthew 10, 28. Do I have that up there? Yes, I do. Okay. Matthew 10, 28. I don't want you to notice this. Uh, how many do not fears are there in scripture? I've heard 300, around 365, one for every day of the year, okay, so that you don't fear. The Bible is full of commandments to not fear. But here is a passage, a verse of Scripture where, where Jesus puts not fearing, don't be afraid, along with fearing. The way that you don't be afraid, we're going to come back to this in a few minutes, the way you don't be afraid is to fear. Do not fear. Fear, even those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As far as I can tell, with all of the fear knots, there's only one exception. And that's the fear of God. As far as I can tell, that's the only exception. Now, Let's skip over the definition. Do you see your outline there? We're going to skip down. This is where we're going to start to rip and run. I've got a lot of uh, verses here on, on the, uh, the screen because I want to, to show you something. This is just a sampling, all right? But Because we can learn a, a lot through examples. Who are people who feared God in scriptures? Are you ready? Let's go over it. Let's begin with Abraham. Now, it's interesting that, that James, earlier in James chapter 2, he, call, he says that, that Abraham was called a friend of God after the particular incident where he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. But if you go back to that actual event, here's what you hear. He said, and this is God speaking to Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. 
God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, how precious would the life of Abraham's son be? How, would, how precious would the life of your child be? And yet, he feared God. There was a hope somehow that Abraham had that transcended his fear, his human fear of losing his son. And that's why God said, you, you fear me. He was called a friend of God. It was fear that led Noah to build the ark. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Now, again, just step back. We read that he constructed an ark. Most of our construction pro projects, we go down to Home Depot or Lowe's and we get something in a box and we go home and we put it together in an afternoon. It was hundreds of years. How in the world did Noah stay the course of building, constructing that ark when he got no help from anybody around him other than his family, in, in light of the mocking that went on, how did he do it? Because he feared God. Jacob, Abraham's grandfather, on his journeys. Now, this is an incredible story. Jacob had a, had a transformation. You know, sometimes I wish we could just stop and hear the stories of transformation in the lives of our people. Because if you have encountered the living God through Jesus Christ, there has been a transformation. And here was a transformation. It was taking place in the life of Jacob. He had been known as the usurper, one who grasps the heel. He was a cheat. But he was being transformed. He had an encounter with God. And he wrestled with God. That was his new name, Israel. He wrestled with God, and after this was all over, look, he awoke from his sleep. This had been a dream, but this was reality. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And what was his response to the presence of God being in that place? He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Well, I could... Like I said, I had to be selective. You can just jot these down. I'm not going to talk about all of them in length. The Hebrew midwife, midwives. You remember that story where Pharaoh had commanded, Pharaoh could take the life of people. He would commanded the Hebrew midwives, you kill the baby boys. But they feared God. More than they feared Pharaoh. And they let the children live. Moses, when he met God the first time, burning bush and he approaches and God says you are on holy ground you say, well who are you I am God I'm the God of your father the God of Abraham the God of Isaac the God of Jacob I'm the creator of the cosmos and Moses hid his face and he was afraid but look at that burning bush now, we also find in the New Testament that, remember when, when the children of Israel were to draw near to Mount Sinai and Moses was there with them? You don't really see it, but we get an interpretation in the book of Hebrews in, in chapter 12. Even Moses, when he came near them out, he trembled with fear. Israel, I'm talking about the nation of Israel. When they saw what God did to the armies of Pharaoh, the people 
feared the Lord. Now, they didn't continue to walk in the fear of the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Job feared God. David. Wait, 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 wait. David loved God. He was a man after God's own heart. Listen, he loved God because he feared him. He was afraid of that, the Lord that day when he saw that one of the, the servants was struck down because he dared to touch the ark. And he said in Psalm 119, My flesh trembles for fear of you. I'm afraid of your just judgments. Are you getting a feel for the, the, the way that these people feared? Not only that, Daniel... In one of his visions, Daniel 10, 10 through 11, he said he was trembling before the Lord. And Jonah, the reluctant prophet, even Jonah, identified himself. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. But some people say, now, Pastor, I, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's Old Testament. All right? That's Old Testament. It's okay because it was different. Who told you that? Not the Scriptures. No, here's what the Scriptures tell us about God. He himself says, I, I don't change. And then Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it's not, it's not just something confined to the Old Testament. Let's move on. Like I said, I, I had to be selective. I know this sounds like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff. There really is. About 300 times, almost 300 times in the Bible, the fear of God is spoken of. So let's look at the New Testament. Peter, James, and John feared God. Took them up to the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, and when they saw Jesus Christ glorified and they heard the voice of God, this is my beloved Son, in Him I am pleased, listen to Him. And what was their response? Jesus is my buddy, hey, He's my life coach. No, 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 no. They fell on their faces and they were terrified. Not only Peter, James, and John, all of the disciples. And, and usually it was display. Jesus it was God, the creator of the cosmos. And the winds and the waves obeyed him. The storm obeyed him. And they were filled with great fear. Paul was motivated in his ministry by the fear of God. He said, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. Now, I love this. Here's a Gentile not even saved yet, a guy by the name of Cornelius who it says was a God-fearing man. I don't think he came by that himself. God gave that to him, but he was a man who feared God. You know, let me just stop here. There was a time in Christianity when People were known by the tag, God-fearing. We have lost that. 
But, but let me just ask you, who would you rather do business with? Someone who is a God-fearing person? Or someone who does not fear God and does his own thing? What kind of a person do you want to marry? You're young enough to even think about that. Someone who is a God-fearing person or someone who, you know, I'm I'm just going to do my own thing. I, I don't have regard for God. And then parents and grandparents, who do you want your daughters to marry? Someone who does his own thing or a God-fearing man? I think it's clear. And, and oh, by the way, the early church, and I had to kind of condense and cut down. Um, th- this is absolutely fascinating. We're told to call out error and do it lovingly. So I'm going to do that in a second after we read this, okay? The early church, how, how, did they, how did they do what they did? Look at this, the awe. And, and that's, that word is the word fear, okay, phobos, same as in the other ones. Came upon every soul. Now, this is early on in Acts 2.43. This is after the day of Pentecost, very early on. Great fear came upon every soul, and the Lord, look at the response. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Then a time came in Acts chapter 5 where a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira um, took the Lord lightly. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to Peter. That wasn't as big a deal as lying to the Holy Spirit. And they both were slain in the Spirit, I guess you could say. What was the attitude of the church and what happened as a result of that? Great fear came upon the whole church. Now, I did some repenting and confessing today because I didn't want this sermon to be punctuated with the illustration that I fall over dead because of some hypocrisy in my life. But you know what would happen? I, I, at least I hope it would. Well, you know, he just had a heart attack. Well, I would hope that great fear would come upon the church, particularly if you knew it. But look at the response. And even more than ever, believers were added to the church. And then after Saul became converted and, and, and the church was going on out of that persecution, walking not in the fear of Saul anymore, but in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, It multiplied. Uh, There was a mailer that was sent out to this part of Oklahoma City about a new church. I'm I'm going to say I know nothing about the church. I know nothing about the the, the pastor, the, the leaders of that church. I'm not judging them. Their motives are probably 100% pure. But here, here is what it said. Some of you got that mailer, I can tell from your faces. It said, here's a church, the church that we're building for you is a party and not a funeral. 
Well, uh, again, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I, 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 I can stretch and may, maybe make some sense of that. But think of that. You know, in the midst of a party, I, I don't know. I've never done this. I don't know if anyone else has done this. In the midst of a party, great revelry, everybody's happy and uh, everything's going on. I've never seen somebody stand up and say, hey, hey, let me have your attention. I want you to know that your life is brief and any minute you could die and you could slip into an eternal hell. Now go back and have your fun. That normally doesn't happen at a party, but the Bible says it is better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of of feasting because this is the end of every man and everyone takes it to heart. There is something about going to a funeral where the gospel is permeating the entire service so that you hear. And by the way, parents, if your kids are old enough, they need to be exposed to that kind of a situation to know that life really is brief and it's important that they know that there is a purpose for which they exist right now and they need to trust Jesus Christ to be prepared for that day. So in answer to the question who feared God in scripture it'd be easier to say who didn't and the answer to that would be found in Romans chapter 3 where it says goes through a litany of different things. They've cast God aside. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, well, let's move on to the second thing. It's actually the last thing. We're going to come back to the definition last. You still tracking? Okay, I, I want to give you some benefits. Now, this may sound self-serving, but let's remember that there are promises made to you as believers for certain things. So what are some benefits that go with the Word of God? I want to motivate you to, to, as a result of hearing this sermon that you, as I have been doing, God, give me a greater sense of the fear, the appropriate fear of you, our great God. Because I, I, I kind of think some of these benefits are, are pretty good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. How many would like to gain more good knowledge? Okay. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Some great benefits. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. And with that, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. You want life? I'm not, I'm not promising length of, you know, we'll let the Lord deal with that with you. But there is a promise about life and a fountain of life for you. And I think one that goes with that, how many of you would like to sleep better? The doc says, oh, that's easy, go get a CPAP. Or something like that, take sleep aids. Well, the fear of the Lord leads to life, he says it again, so that one may sleep satisfied untouched by evil. That's a pretty good deal. Well, there's more. Blessed, happy is the one who fears the Lord always. I can just about tell by being around someone for any length of time, and I'm not talking about giddiness, that kind of thing. 
But there is a sense in which when I'm around someone and they just have that, that atmosphere, that sense of being happy and blessed, and maybe I know their circumstances and they're not really good circumstances, but they're in the midst of those circumstances, they're blessed, then I know that person is a person who fears God even more than their circumstances. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Now listen to this, parents, and his children will have a refuge. If people around you heap fear on you, remember, you're not to fear man. You're not to fear the circumstances. Do they heap fear on you about the political environment of our country? Does anybody ever do that? Do you ever slip into that? the economic conditions, or maybe your own personal economic, financial conditions. And there are so many different things, a relationship. I was thinking of this this morning. If every man and woman who is struggling in their marriage, bottom line, feared God, there would be a healing of marriages in this church and every church based on the fear of God. You may fear raising your, your kids or your grandkids in a culture like this. Listen, you fear God, it says your children will have a refuge. Don't be paralyzed by circumstances. Randy Smith, one of the quotes over here, the bottom, We look at this, so good. We fear so much today simply because we do not fear God. Matthew 10, 28, don't fear. Fear not those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's another verse that I, I just had to put in there. I will give them one heart in one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me. Look, look what he's going to do. This is a gift. This is a grace gift. I will put the fear of man in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. So with all of that said, what do you think? Do you think that the church in general has lost a sense of the fear of God today? And I said it before, perhaps the, the, the greatest breach is the violation of the third commandment, to not take God lightly. God is not your life coach. He is not your co-pilot. He's not your Jesus buddy. He is a friend. But let's remember that he is the lawgiver, the judge, the savior, and the destroyer. Now, I look at the time. Oh, 11.46 by that clock. Surely that clock is wrong. I haven't been preaching as long as that clock says, have I? Yeah. What is meant by the command of God? Let, let's wrap this thing up. Look again at James 4.12. Do you see something there mingled with terror as a motivation? In James 4.12, we see salvation. 
Do you see it? And it permeates all of the other passages throughout the Bible. If you see the context of Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, you see not only that we are to fear him who can kill the body and the soul in hell, but then he goes on to speak of his care for his people, that you're more valuable than the birds, that he will watch over and that he will care for you. Jesus doesn't fall all over himself negating the stark warning, but he wants you to know the context into which it is set. He is the God who is fearful, but who saves. And when people like Isaiah or Job or the disciples were in his presence, they had a profound sense of his greatness, of his holiness, of his justice, and their own smallness and sinfulness, and they were terrified. They should have been because he could vaporize them in a minute, but he wouldn't. And that is why the scriptures, if we're going to see a right view of the fear of God, we have to have a profound sense of his almost unbelievable goodness, that he has saved us when we deserve the very opposite, and we are drawn to him and we love him. And that is how they could fear him and love him at the same time, and that's how we can do so as well. So look at the definition in your worship guide. The fear of God is that awesome reference of the Lord derived from being sensitive to his glorious, holy, majestic person. I know this is wordy. Trying to pack it in. Resulting in a trembling zeal to respectfully and joyfully obey every word of his mouth. Heard a guy describe another man this last week. Maybe you've heard a description like this. He said, that guy is scary smart. You ever heard somebody describe like that? You know what that means? I mean, his intelligence is so off the charts that it's, it's, you're intimidated to be in his presence. And when I heard that, I started thinking, wow, I, I was already preparing this message, and I thought, wow, is God scary? Folks, he is scary good. He is scary, but he is scary good. We don't fear God, which we must do, because he is bad, because he isn't, and he can't be. We fear him because he is able to, and he would be totally just if he judged us and destroyed us in hell. But we stand in utter amazement and awe of him because he has sent his son to be our substitute and take the punishment that we deserve in our place. Folks, God is scary good to us. Read the John Brown quote, that's not me. That's a John Brown that lived a long time ago. And not the abolitionist. I close with this illustration. 
And if you don't know Jesus, oh, let the fear of God drive you to his forgiveness. If you know Jesus, pray, cry out for the fear of God. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he tells of the four children. And, uh, of course, the, the king. Remember what his name was? Aslan. Thank you. So when they're in Narnia, the, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Do you remember this story? And he describes Aslan to them. So Lucy, and some of you are drawn back to the, the pictures you, you remember from the movie. Is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan? A man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the, beyond the sea. Don't you know that he is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And our God is scary good. Father, please, please take your words, drive them into your, to our hearts, and transform us, develop us, into people who delight in you, declare your glory, because we have the appropriate kind of fear for you. Thank you, Lord. Help us to respond now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing, and after we sing this song of response,